Welcome back to Holistic Health Masterclass Podcast. This is your host, Brett Hawes, and uh, we're back with our first episode for 2022. Um, we are going to be talking about a few different things um, that uh, I've kind of touched on before in the past, but I think that they've really come into focus here uh, as we progress further into the pandemic. Um and in a nutshell, um, we are talking about the future of food. And the future of food here, um, the, some of the areas that we really spend most of our time on um, is really looking at the origins of uh, plant-based eating, veganism, and so forth, and how they've kind of worked their way in to um, the what what I will call with utmost love and care the plant-based agenda here, um, so as not to uh, offend anyone. Uh, but when we look at um, things like sustainability, when we look at uh, UN Agenda 2030, when we look at this very, very radical push for things like um, essentially factory foods and this push for synthetic foods, uh, the push for lab-grown and cultured meats, uh, things like Beyond Meat, Impossible Meats, um, all, all of this sort of stuff. And um, we're, we're going to talk in this episode about the origins of that, where we're at right now, and what the road looks like moving forward. Um, if you're not aware of any of this, or you haven't really looked into it too much, um, the short answer is that we have these organizations like the EAT organization um, and the EAT Lancet study, which was completed a few years ago. And essentially what these organizations are doing um, is, is attempting to uh, create this one-size-fits-all diets for human and planetary health. And uh, lo and behold, um, that diet uh, looks very, very, I mean, it is a vegetarian uh, diet um, for the most part, or a quasi-vegetarian diet with very, very, very low uh, meat consumption and so on. Um, and there are a few very inherent problems uh, with all of that, and that's kind of what we talk about uh, here. And um, we get into the, the what the big push is and why and uh, who might be sponsoring and funding these types of things and where that road leads to. Uh, my guest today is a uh, professor from the University of Brussels, uh, Frédéric Lewis. Uh, I have had Frédéric on the show before um, to discuss. Uh, we spoke a little bit more about the war on meat um, in our first episode a couple of years ago. And uh, we kind of pick things up here and uh, bring it into twenty. Uh, 2022. Um, Frederick is a professor at the University of uh, Belgium. Um, his background is industrial microbiology and food biotechnology. Uh, his re research primarily deals with the ecological aspects and functional roles of bacterial communities in fermented foods with a focus on animal products. In addition, his interests relate to human and animal health and well-being, as well as to elements of tradition and innovation in food context. Uh, his research is often an interdisciplinary nature involving collaborations with experts in microbiology, animal production, veterinary sciences, social and consumer sciences, cultural anthropology, and food history. Um, I think you're going to find this episode is really rich, I feel. Uh, there's a lot of nuance, there's a lot of context to our discussion, and um, I hope that it gets you thinking uh, a little bit more about um, the future of food and uh, where we're headed. Um, 
As always, uh, if you would like to support the show, uh, you can share this episode, you can subscribe, you can leave a review, and uh, you can also check out the show notes um, for links to our sponsors, uh, where you can get discounts on uh, products, uh, health products, and so forth, and um, yeah, help support the show that way. Uh, thanks for tuning in, and uh, without further ado, uh, here is uh, Frédéric Lewis. All right, um, Frederick, welcome back to Holistic Health Masterclass Podcast. It's been a long time since we've seen each other. How have you been? Fine, <laughs> busy. <laughs> you have right. been busy. I know we've actually tried to nail down a time here for a few weeks now. And finally, yeah. um, you know, it's 7th of January is the time of recording here. Um, and boy, has the world changed uh, so much. I mean, you were on the podcast uh, a couple of years ago, give or take. And um, at that time, uh, we spoke a bit more about meat and, you know, almost like the war on meat and that sort of stuff. And we definitely will tie that into today's conversation. Um, but, you know, I think a lot of what we spoke about on the previous podcast uh, was a little bit too far ahead for a lot of people. And and here we are, you know, um, two years into a pandemic and we've got a lot of different things that have changed now. Um, climate change is is really front and center um, you know, we had the uh, the, the COP26 um, just happened a couple of months ago and so on. But before we get into any of that, um, you know, I, I would love for you to just share with people, with our audience, you know, maybe uh, people that don't know you. Uh, can you perhaps just explain a little bit about what you do, you know, what your credentials are, um, what area have you really focused on and worked on in the course of your career? Mm -hmm. Well, I'm, I'm a food scientist and technologist, basically. So I, I come from a bioengineering background and um, I did a master thesis uh, in uh, human nutrition and food security, nutritional security. Then I moved into food technology um, and I became a process engineer, food microbiologist, but still with an interest also in, um, you know, food safety, food quality, nutritional quality. And um, I, I, since the beginning of my research career, I'm, I'm a professor at Brussels University in Belgium. <clears throat> my uh, topic of research always has been related to animal source foods. Just by coincidence, if you wish, it was not really a, a specific choice in the beginning. It just happened to be that way. <clears throat> and uh, because of that, I also, of course, was confronted with all the controversies and um, the debates and the... Um, the very emotional discussions around red meat in particular, but also the other ones. Uh, and I also entered the space of interdisciplinary research uh, to uh, understand the networks behind what is happening, discourse analysis, um, actor network analysis, and trying to find out why uh, a what is basically a, a normal topic of what used to be a normal topic of research and the, the production of animal source foods and their implications for health and, and, and nutrition and so on, why that became controversial, try to understand what was going on. And that brought me on a very, uh, into a new domain, basically. And uh, early on, and that's the last time we spoke, I started to understand that something wasn't right in the way dietary guidelines um, were shifting to new um uh, to, to not only to new ways of, of formulation and intervention, but to, to much more radical uh, approaches with a very negative attitude towards everything that comes from animal production. That's very bizarre because in the end, animal 
products have always been the ones that were most cherished by by humanity since the early uh, the early days of, of human existence. Uh, and I wanted to find out what was going on. Mm. Um, well, you know what? I think that's a great place to start because, uh, you know, without rehashing anything that we've discussed previously and, and obviously longtime listeners uh, of the show would have, have heard a lot of this already. But um, if we look historically back to traditional diets, um, you know, I think that animal foods, correct me if I'm wrong, but animal foods really were a part of pretty well all traditional diets if you go back far enough in time. And um, things really started to shift with uh, agriculture, right? So once we started to actually farm and grow food, of course, people did eat plant foods as well. We're not saying that people were strict carnivores um, historically. But at what point, is that correct, first of all, in, in saying that? You know, sure, were there yes. any vegetarian well, or vegan societies, historically speaking? We're basically flexible omnivores. So uh, as, as humans, we have entered so, so many different ecosystems, which are so fundamentally different in between them. Uh, you know, the Arctic system is a completely different one than what happens mm. in the tropical regions. So we've been eating different uh, types of food and uh, always with animal source foods included. Um, to different degrees. Uh, sometimes the emphasis was more on, on fish and or on red meat, or sometimes it was, uh, especially after the agriculture, agricultural transitions, dairy also became important. Mm. So we're very flexible, basically. We managed to survive in many different uh, food ecosystems and, and habitats, and we were doing fine uh, by combining those foods that just covered our nutritional needs. Yeah. Um, now, agriculture has changed the paradigm. It became sometimes more difficult because there was a dependency on, on certain, it was an, an extra fragility inside the system, right? Mm. Because, you know, you were depending on the harvest. And, um, but basically, we always managed to, to deal with nutritional resources and make the best of it. Yeah. Um, and then you have the, the next shift, which happens after the industrialization and, and the shift to Western diets, which is, again, a completely new paradigm. Yeah. Um, and I will just also sort of add to that, um, you know, the work of Dr. Weston Price, uh, who, you know, he was a Canadian dentist and uh, he traveled all over the world to some very remote parts of the world and uh, really documented what people were eating um, mm -hmm. around the turn of the last century. I think it was like maybe a little bit later, you know, in the, the 20s, somewhere around there. Um, but he was at a very interesting time where um, you know, f processed foods were really starting to now make a feature, right? And so he, you know, his focus was really looking at what was happening to the next generation as highly processed foods started to make their way into the food supply, um, which is a conversation for another time. I think the, my point of bringing him up was that uh, food was, um, it was what was locally available. And so, right. as you said, you know, a, a Paleolithic diet, if you wanted, to, if you want to call it that, would look very different in the Caribbean islands versus um, the Arctic. You know, completely different, right? But nonetheless, um, you know, animal foods were were always involved in that. So, what happened along the way? Because, I mean, you know, if we fast forward to today. There's this big push, and you know, this is really where we're going to spend most of our time on this episode. There's this huge push for veganism. You know, the plant-based agenda is going full steam ahead. Uh, we we're going to talk about things like the Eat Lancet, um, you know, the diet for planetary and human health, and that sort of stuff. But I would love for us, you know, to try and 
like where did things change you know at what time did vegetarianism suddenly become a thing and veganism suddenly become this movement uh, like we see it today mm. well it, it it didn't happen in once it's uh, so you historically you always had uh, on an anecdotal on how to say this uh, throughout history we had several movements that uh, or several people and, and individuals or, or sectarian movements that were vegetarian. Um, it goes all the way back to, to, the, to antiquity, basically. Pythagoras was, was one example. Um, and, uh, but, but those movements were always very spiritual and linked to purity. It was always a spiritual thing to do, basically. Mm. And it was never a mainstream mass movement. Um, but uh, it became more mainstream during the 19th century. And that was the result of uh, the Swedenborgian church that morphed into mm. the Bible Christians and so on. And they, they uh, were very much interested in uh, bringing back the Garden of Eden on, on earth. So they were also awaiting the second coming. And then they wanted to eat in the most pure ways and uh, return to the Garden of Eden diet, which basically meant no more animal foods, um, mm. Mm. seeds, fruits, uh, and uh, the first vegetarian societies were founded, and that happened in the 19th century, uh, mid-19th centuries, by those Bible Christians, and then later the Seventh-day Adventists came, and then they, you know, they amplified that. You had um, Sylvester Graham and all those people that reinforced the idea. And then we, uh, it's during the progressive era, basically, um, it, was, it entered also public discourse and medical discourse. And that's because people like uh, Kellogg, for instance, which comes from a Seventh-day Adventist background, <clears throat> he connected the vegetarian spiritual ideas to modernity and to, to medicine and to therapy. And, to, and um, it entered also household economics and uh, dietetic societies uh, through people like Lena Cooper, for instance, which was uh, you know, was was from from the, the close circle of of, of Kellogg, and um, and those dietetic dietetic societies uh, took that message of whole grains being good for you and meat being bad for you to a new level, because initially it was about being as pure as possible. You know, Garden of Eden was one thing, but it was also said that red meat would uh, corrupt the youth and it would uh, oh wow <laughs> amplify sexual desire and. Uh, so it was connected to masturbation, and so it had to be taken away f uh, from, especially from from children. Um, so it had this, those ideas of carnal lust, and you know, carnal lust yeah, yeah, refers yeah. to meat in the first. Um, and then whole grains were the good thing, and and this idea was morphed into a scientific concept, and that happened, you know, during the turn of the century, and um, it it became dietary advice at some point, and it yeah. entered the middle classes. Of especially the United States, but also Australia and you know the the West the Westernized, especially Anglo-Saxon spheres of, of the planet, and um, and because of that, uh, it became the right way to eat for the upper middle classes. It was the virtue the, the the virtuous thing to do. It was the moral way of eating. You know, you you eat clean, oh, you eat oh, pure. Yeah. And, and this thing basically got got, got entered uh, dietary conceptions, and and now we measure that, we capture that idea through nutritional epidemiology of chronic disease. What we do in, in nutritional epidemiology is 
is capturing associations between people and disease and the way they eat is the, is the thing that bridges it. So if we see that red meat uh, is associated with chronic disease, basically what we're capturing here is that the, is the fact that the healthier people tend to avoid red meat more than the others, those are the upper middle classes, and then the unhealthy people who don't really care about dietary advice, but also live less healthy lifestyles, they are the ones that eat more red meat. And you capture this basically cultural artifact in, in, in dietary behavior, and you make it science. Right? Huh. And, and, and build on that scientific layer, you create a notion of authority. And so it makes it easier for those people at you know the upper levels to say, look, we're talking about science, so this is the way you should eat. And it becomes a self-amplifying idea. And uh, and then, you know, some historical events, it, because it's not always a very linear process, it's always you know, right. several factors and things going on. <clears throat> but then it was connected to Ansel Keys and his saturated fat theory. Uh, and and uh, it was con also connected to the way the food industry identified the market. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah. Because Animal source foods are not, not so much interesting for the ultra-processed food industry because with animal source foods, except maybe from from you know um, products obtained from the dairy industry where you can have milk powder and so, you, you're right. not going to do a lot with a, with a piece of red meat. You know, it's, it's this yeah, is not yeah, what they yeah. are interested in. They're interested in in cheap, standardized bulk materials, which are basically coming from crop agriculture. Mm. Um, so it is, you have this industry finding an opportunity, you have uh, the, the middle classes trying to promote vegetarianism because, you know, they like to express their, their moral um, worth and, uh, and all that entered policy making and then it, it became its own thing. Yeah. And, and um, you know, so you touch on a couple of things. I mean, I think that uh, a lot of people don't realize that, you know, the dietary guidelines that we know, you know, the food guide here in Canada or the food guide in the US or whatever, you know, a lot of people think these were these were written by dietitians or, or doctors or nutritionists. And in fact, you know, they were actually written by the food industry, you know, the, the different boards, um, right? Well, so yes, or, or academics that were, you know, connected to those board to those <laughs> industrial uh, or residentists. Um, yes, there's, there's, there was an agenda from both sides, to be fair, it was also, an, you know, a counter push from the dairy and the meat industry to, to you know, and then in the end, something came out of it that was a bit bizarre. And then it, it keep, kept on evolving. But it's always it always has been a nexus where different forces try to manipulate what the advice should be, because if you control food advice, you control the food market or you will control the food market. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, something else you brought up, which which I'll just reiterate, is the idea of, you know, um, like seed oils is a good example, right? So all of a sudden, you've got this these like waste products from the foods that you're growing that you can now, you can sell, you know, once you refine something, you can refine something into three or four different parts. And now you've got these four different products from one food product. And of course, that's great from an economic standpoint um, as well, right? Um, now, you know, I don't really want to spend too much time on the health side of things, because I think we could be there for a long time. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, I can just tell you as a clinician, as someone who's been in practice for almost 18 years now, and, uh, you know, I see a lot of people with autoimmune issues, with gut issues and whatnot. And I would say that there's a, a good percentage, you know, probably close to half of the clients that I work with are, um, you know, they, they, they are coming to me with health issues and they are eating a plant-based diet. 
Um, and to sort of, you know, go one step further, I noticed that a lot of people that I work with, once we actually remove certain plant-based foods um, and, and increase the protein, increase the fats from animal products, they actually start to do much better in terms of the health. But that's not really the focal point for our conversation today. Um, you know, I want to I wanna really, you know, now that we understand all of that, um, you know, if where are we heading to now? Because I think that, um, you know, if we look at the last uh, even 10 years, you know, 10, 15 years, um, I think veganism was something that was kind of on the fringe. Um, and now it's really push, push, push. You know, when you uh, look in the public space now and, and you know, I work, I've worked with supplement companies, I've done formulations for them and so on. I've done education and all of them, you know, the, the, the rhetoric um, from the 10,000 foot overview is all plant-based, plant-based, plant-based because plant-based equals good. Um, you know, and that's kind of where we're going. But I think that, um, you know, to even skip over that, we're now also entering into this area where, um, you know, in the middle of a pandemic, um, I would like to bring us on to things like the uh, UN Food Systems uh, Summit, um, the Eat Lancet uh, study or the Eat Lancet, um, I, what, what would you call it, the Eat Lancet diet or the, the, yeah. So things like that. And, and maybe if I can just tee it up for you, essentially where we're headed now, uh, if we just zoom right out, is we are now working our way very, very rapidly down a path where um, meat and an animal based diet is very bad. Um, it's bad for your health, it's bad for the planet. Um, you're a terrible person if you eat like that. It doesn't matter where you come from or what you're, whether you're wealthy or poor or whatever eating meat is bad. And if you eat plants, it's good. And this is the thing that's going to save the planet. This is the thing that's going to, and I mean, you know, I, they, they talk a little bit about health in terms of the agenda 2030 and the United Nations stuff, but really the focus is really on planetary health, climate change and stuff like that. So, um, where, where do you want to start, um, with all of that? <laughs> Cause it's a huge topic to unpack, you know? If I, if I think we need to, so we've talked briefly about the fact that the way you eat is an expression of, of identity and about, you know, being virtuous and so on. So that's, that's already installed in the population. Uh, and then you have the food industry that tries to capitalize on that. So that, that's what we talked about before. Now there's another dimension that we need to bring in if we're going to talk about uh, the United Nations and the Eat Lancet diet and so forth. And that is the one of technocracy basically and um, those people that are planning uh, resources uh, and uh, dealing with populations and um, trying to manage the human herd towards a specific goal and that started essentially during the late 1960s you can go earlier right technocracy is a concept from the 1930s and even before that if you wish but uh, the late 1960s um, was a period where we um, uh, where, where certain think tanks and people came up with plans for the planet. And uh, a typical example is the Club of Rome, um, who uh, who published a report uh, "Limits to Growth," and it's very Malthusian, right? It's about the planet, which is finite, and we are depleting all the resources. And that will create catastrophe. That that came in during the late 1960s. Um, in 69, there was a report also commissioned by Richard Nixon 
um, and that looked into, I don't remember the exact name now, but it's something like uh, the American future and population and um, and it is a and, and in that report already they mentioned that in future times it will not be possible to live the, la- the way we're living right uh, back then. Um, and the idea was to come to to move towards food from factories, as they literally call it in the report. So in that report, which was Rockefeller Commission report, uh, food from factories was introduced as a goal. Uh, and they were saying, look, this is going to be tricky because the public is not going to accept it. And uh, for that reason, we need to be coming up with specific strategies to get there. Uh, and it was about taking away animal source foods um, and moving to synthetic foods. And that's that's like a high level, high profile report that that is publicly available. Uh, and... Um, and, and so, so if you want to get there, you will need a specific strategy. And they were talking about a lobby for the future. And um, still during that same period, early 1970s, we had the uh, Stockholm Conference uh, organized by Maurice Strong, uh, who is the founder of, of uh, United Nations Environment Program and later also organized in 92, organized the Rio Conference, which was the predecessor for then whatever happened after that, uh, including the Paris Agreement and so on. So there's a whole trajectory going back to the Rockefellers, Maurice Strong, which was a Rockefeller frontman in the first place, and, and then the United Nations that, that build on that on that process. Um, to the point that uh, there was a boom of all kinds of think tanks and platforms and a very complex network of all kinds of different players like the Stockholm Environment Institute and the World Resources Institute and so and all those different players are still active today decades later and huh. they have crystallized into a new configuration which was very much tied also to the United Nations Food System Summit that you just mentioned and which had the purpose, but somehow it went uh, not as they planned, but which had the purpose to come up with a planetary solution. Uh, And that's why you have the Eat Lancet diet, which calls itself a planetary health diet. So that's the idea is to come up with a diet that is meant for everybody. And that's typical for those planners, right? For those technocrats, they want to have one thing for the planet. And we're not only talking about food, it's valid for many things. So they want to come up with a standardized uh, management of the population. So we're going to give everybody the same food. So they deny that. They say they're flexible, but if you look at the actual proposals, it's very rigid and it's very, very narrowed down to specific ideas. Well, can you, can you perhaps expand on that just for people that are maybe not familiar with the Eat Lancet way of eating? Um, I'm actually looking at it right now, and obviously for those watching or listening, um, I will post a link to that so you can look at it for yourself. But uh, for those who are just listening, um, maybe just give us a, a, a sketch of what does that actually look like. Mm-hmm. So it, you, you could call it a you could call it a, a near vegetarian diet. It's not really vegetarian because it, it allows for small amounts of red meat. Um, so just 14 grams per day. Uh, 14 so grams, between, that's it? 14, <laughs> yes, between zero and 14. So they actually advise seven grams, okay. um, which is nothing, basically, <laughs> right? Um, and then you can have one and a half egg in a week or something. And it, all animal source foods are um, at very low levels. Okay. Uh, to the point that each category of animal source foods is below the suggested intake of sugar. You know, it's very, very low quantities. Um 
and it's you could say that it's near vegetarian or quasi vegetarian it also allows for a vegan option that's also allowed but what is not allowed is substantial amounts of animal sourced foods right so, so, so pe and, people doing paleo or keto or something like that i mean that's just there's no space for like, them no that's the complete opposite of where they're where they're going yeah okay yeah yes so that that doesn't match um and it the diet is also said to be meant for the planet but basically you have to know that the diet was designed for nutritional reasons so it, it's designed by walter willett mostly from harvard university and it's designed for for health reasons and then huh. it, it, it they match to the planetary boundaries to, and they say it's also good for the planet but the way it has been designed and that's the most bizarre part of it because <laughs> it doesn't make sense at all is for health not for not huh. for the planet so it's not designed for 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 the environment that's secondary huh. afterwards okay. it's also good for the environment um and that near vegetarian diet is uh coming from a group of scientists which is which are called themselves the Eat Lancet Commission because it's published in, published in the Lancet. And it's um, organized or overseen by the Eat Foundation. Now, the Eat Foundation is, um, is, is, a, is a, a Norwegian initiative. Um, and it is, and the founder uh, of, of the Eat Foundation, who is also a, um, a young global leader of the World Economic Forum, calls it a Davos for food. So they're calling it a oh, Davos wow. for food. And why is that? Because the concept of all of all this is to connect um, the, the, the science to corporations. And that's why they have also made alliances such as the Fresh Alliance, which is uh, the Fresh Alliance is, is a, a formal alliance between the EAT Foundation and the World Business Council uh, for Sustainable Development. And that comprises all the big multinationals, all the big food multinationals, all the the major food multinationals belong to that. Um, and and they, they, they're endorsing the planetary health diet. Yeah. So I want to I want to come back to that in just a second, but let's let's just talk about the health side of things for one minute here. You know, as a as a food scientist, it's someone who's you know an academic. When you look at what they've put on the table, uh, do you think that that is actually a healthy diet? You know, obviously, we can't have one diet for the whole planet, right? I mean, that's it's kind of crazy, right? right? It, and and the analogy that I like to use is, you know, can you imagine if I had someone um, pre-technology, can you imagine if I gave someone, a, a Jamaican in the Caribbean, if I got them to just eat whale blubber, you know, for six months, they would be dead of a heart attack, you know, that, that just wouldn't work. But But aside from all of that, I mean, when you look at this diet, do you think that this is actually a sustainable, healthy diet for, for people? Well, it, it's problematic at many levels. Uh, sustainability is also an issue, right? We say it's good for the planet, but it comes with all kinds of bizarre implications. Uh, you know, for instance, they're advised to eat lots of nuts. <laughs> How are you going to make all those nuts and make it sustainable? Anyway, that's that's another discussion. But with mm -hmm. respect to health, uh, it, people are different. And that's why the planetary health diet thing, you know, the, the, the one solution, the one size fits all kind of thing, for, it's not making sense because everybody's different. Some people make do all right with the planetary health diet, yeah. but they have to be careful and, and you know, respect certain conditions. Uh, others will completely fail on a plant. You mentioned yeah. before that you had patients that are reacting badly to specific plant components. Uh, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, even people that have allergies, right, to to, to legumes or to, to nuts and to, to cereals, uh, gluten intolerance or, or just not, not necessarily even gluten intolerance, but just bad reactions. Gr grain intolerance, um, and, yeah. 
Yes, and then the fact that that also everybody reacts differently to food. Because if you take your nutrients from plants, very often they are not in the active state yet. Those nutrients need to be transformed. Um, like for instance, uh, by yourself, by your body. Yes, yes. So you have yeah. a bioconversion process in your body that converts the, the precursors from the plants into the active compounds. Uh, beta carotene mm -hmm. into vitamin A, for instance. That's like one right, example. Right, right. But you have many other. You have several examples, and and those processes are different from person to person. Yeah. So depending on your on, on your bodily configuration, your metabolic state, you will react differently. Sure. So everybody needs to look for it for the diet that, that fits well, first of all, with its cultural and, and personal preferences, because that's also downplayed. I mean, I think that it's important, uh, but also with the biology. Um, mm -hmm. And so it, so the way people will react to this planetary health diet will vary from person to person. Not everybody will do well. Some people may do better. Uh, but generally speaking, if you take out a very, very valuable source of nutrients, which is you know, the category of animal source foods, or you reduce it to a very low level, you're making your diet less robust. That that's so you you're restricting right. your 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 you're restricting the options to a, to a narrowed down set of foods, and that makes it more risky, makes it less robust. So you make it making it yourself difficult to have to achieve good health because you're throwing out lots of valuable material here. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, so and and I think it's important for just to point out here. Um, there's two things I want to bring up. The first one is. You know, when you're pushing down this, you know, heavy plant-based um, side of things, and of course, we've been told that it's good for the planet. There's the spiritual component, which you brought up before. There's the clean eating. So there's a lot of like nice slogans and lofty language around that. Um, but, you know, we, we also have to then peel back the veneer and ask ourselves, you know, who stands to gain here? Because when you start getting into things like genetic modification, when you start getting into food processing and stuff like that, you know, these these can all be processed into a million different ways, as you said earlier, versus, um, you know, a piece of meat. Well, there's not much you can do with a piece of meat. You know, you can have uh, dried meat, um, you can have minced meat, cubed <laughs> meat, a steak, and that's kind of it. You know, there's not a whole lot. So, so can you maybe share a little bit about what's perhaps going on behind the scenes? I mean, who's funding, um, you know, the, the eat? Lancet study and their commission and that sort of thing. Do you know? Well, they're, they're mostly funded by things like the Wellcome Trust and um, uh, and a couple of phil uh, philanthropic organizations. But but they have those alliances with big players in in the food industry. Uh, they're not directly funded by them, but of course they it's it's a synergy. Uh, yeah, it, yeah. It, it, it it opens doors to them and and and, it, and they help them to organize uh, roadmaps and and. Um, especially the World Business Council for Sustainable Development is a very close ally and, and those represent uh, you know, those, the, the, the big corporations. They also yeah. are very close to the Good Food Institute because the, the, the founder of EAT was within the United Nations Food System Summit, the founder of EAT was chairing Action Track 2, uh, which was the development of sustainable diets. So they have given what I would say the most important track of the whole United Nations Food System Summit to eat. And, and it was filled up with their own people, basically. And within that list of people, with, so within Action Track 2, uh, you could clearly see who are the players they're associating with. And among them, you also find the Good Food Institute. And the Good Food Institute is another lobby group, and this is the lobby group for the vegan tech. So that's all the Silicon Valley guys and you know the Impossible Burgers and all those. So they are represented. You have the traditional multinationals that are represented. 
And they have identified uh, a business model. That, that's what it is. Uh, you connect this to the to the utopian planners that are in the background. You connect it also to uh, the whole virtue signaling thing, where you know. It, it, so all those things put together uh, give you a cocktail of interests that are not only financial, but they are technocratic, they are symbolic. Uh, and, and they blend mm. in, into this monster that is massively pushing now for, for plant-based diets. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, a, it, it's always difficult to describe how this has originated. I think it, more has, it has to do more with the conditions of possibility that we're facing today. So there are certain conditions of possibility that allow for those things to happen. And that's not only because players are pushing that agenda, it's also because society is receptive, or at least a part of society is receptive. Uh, we've worked our way into it, right, over a longer period of time versus just coming out and saying, hey, one day everyone should be plant-based and it's good for the planet. It's yes, taken yeah. us, you know, probably since the 70s even, where that whole in the environmentalism, greenwashing, that sort of stuff, um, you know. So, yeah, right. I, I and, get it, that. and it And it, par it parallels also the, the evolution within society of um, the connection of detachment from food production. People don't know how food mm. is produced anymore. I mean, you don't, you're not faced with food production or with agriculture or let, let alone the slaughtering of an animal. As time passes by, uh, after the Second World War, as time passes by, uh, that gap has been widening. And all food now comes from a package. Right? You buy it in a supermarket; right. it's a package, and you, you're not. You're not. So it becomes. An, it's becoming an abstraction. And if you have that abstraction in place, you have um, you have a very uh, fertile ground for such kind of scenarios. Uh, plus the fact that we are facing a society that, at this moment in time, especially uh, is uh, is consumed by anxiety you know we have, we, yeah. we have yeah. an anxious population that needs solutions and they yeah. need clear symbolic messages the plan-based message is a simple one you know it's it's uh, it promises you a lot it's simple it promises you a lot and it also allows for for um herd formation you know you you're you're yeah. basically um, bringing people together under that message you're you're fighting for mm -hmm. the same ID and you're 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 expressing that you're part of that movement. Uh, you want to save the planet. You want to uh, save public health. Um, yeah. So, so yeah. those are conditions within society that make it possible for those agendas to do the thing they're doing. Because otherwise, they would never penetrate, or they would never be able to never stand a chance. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I just for for listeners, I would encourage you to go back to um, I did an episode called "Who Are They." Um, and uh, who who are they? Meaning the they part, right? And we're, this is kind of what we're talking about here: is is this relationship between um, the the real top tier corporations, you know, your your Black Rocks, your Vanguards, and that sort of thing, um, that own absolutely everything, and how they connect through these um, foundations, you know, these foundations and nonprofits, and then they connect to things like academia, they connect to, um, you know, the manufacturing, the pharmaceutical industries, and so forth. And then that trickles down into policy. 
You know, so we, we're seeing that now in real time. I mean, people can go back and listen to that. Uh, we're seeing that in real time, particularly with um, with vaccines and that sort of stuff going on now. You know, it's the same thing with the World Health Organization and um, not to get into vaccines on this show at all. But it's very similar in that sense where, you know, you just put that unified message out and you just blast it 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. And you do get that herd formation where it's like, you know, do this and this is good. And then we will get out of this thing or we will I will feel like I'm doing something good for my fellow human and so forth. And I feel like this, um, you know, the plant based um, agenda here is very, very similar. And I just want to be clear on my position as well. I'm not saying that that eating plants is a bad thing. I don't think either of us are saying that. Um, but I think the thing that is is probably uh, that a lot of people are not aware of is that the push that we're talking about and this thing that we've we've laid out here is is not necessarily um, going to be optional in the future. Do you know what I mean? They're pushing for this to be mandatory in a sense and to really disrupt the food system, disrupt food supply. Um, you know, there is a war on meat, like plain and simple. Um, you know, and perhaps we can talk about that a little bit because there's been some very, very interesting developments that I've been paying attention to. Uh, swine flu outbreaks. I mean, there's the the pigs um, in the UK and and animal animal farming in the UK has taken a huge hit. Um, I know in the U.S. as well, there's farmers that are just um, just not able to process animals and stuff. So, um, you know, I, I think just to just to wrap that thought up, uh, this is something that is being pushed very heavily. This is not just a suggestion that everyone should just eat more plants and there we go. This is really, um, you know, track and trace and uh, and do away with with um, meat production altogether, right? Mm. Yeah, well, you mentioned BlackRock, and there's there's one person from BlackRock on the on the advisory board of the Eat Foundation, for instance. What is what is BlackRock doing on, on you know within an NGO that is arguing for public health? And so they, there's clearly a, a a push that uh, is is radical and is about mm. disruption. Um, of course, I'm not against people that choose to eat you know vegan diets. I'm right, perfect. Sure, yeah, I mean, yeah. Food, no problem at all. I'm, I'm yeah. a bit more worried if it's imposed on children, on small children specifically. But it, for the rest, I mean, everybody should be eating as he wishes or he or she wishes. Or right, pleases. right. Um, so that's not the issue at all. The problem is when when uh, it's some people think start thinking it's a good idea to impose it on all the rest of us, and that is being done. Um, and there's some very concerning initiatives at this moment. Uh, maybe we can talk at this point about Please. the. Um, the C40 Cities Initiative, for instance, the C40 Cities, cities uh, it's, it's again a big platform where you'll find again the same philanthropic organizations and the same players. That's interesting, yeah. by the way, you mentioned, you know, the medical side of affairs, there's the food side of affairs, there's the climate change uh, story. All those big, big issues, all the ones that create lots of anxiety. Whenever mm -hmm. you look at the, at the players that are pushing the narratives, it's the same ones. It's always yep. the same ones. And that yep. cannot be a coincidence, right? There's, there's an interest yeah. in create, in amplifying the anxiety and in, and, and in, in, in disrupting certain, certain ways of behaving, some traditional ways of, of acting. Um, so C40 Cities um, is one of those platforms and, and you, you can identify the various players. You'll find it on the internet. Uh, and they have come up uh, some time ago with a, a an agenda a plan for 2030 and that is implementing the planetary health diet so the eat lancet diet um and that means going through that 
to 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 impose that diet uh, wherever they can, uh, and and that 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 that's me. That means schools, public canteens, uh, anything that they have control on. And uh, the, the progressive target is to go to the um, the to the low levels of animal source foods. And then they have the ambitious target, which means to radically take out meat and dairy altogether. So there will be no meat or dairy allowed anymore. So that will be practically a vegan diet. And that is, that's, a, that's a document that has been signed off by mayors of, of global cities. There are, I think, 14 global cities that have subscribed to this. Um, and we're talking about cities like uh, Los Angeles and London and Barcelona and Milan. Um, and so they are adopting their policies, and we see the first signs of it. We see already that it's being implemented um, in in policy making. We see more and more cities deciding that they are going to offer only vegetarian meals in their official receptions or in their official meetings. And step by step, it's becoming more widespread. Uh, and clearly, the goal is to implement it in as many places as they can. Uh, and that's that's where it's really heading. It's it's using regulation to intervene in food choice um, by all means, and that also that also explains the push for a tax on meat, for instance, or a tax on dairy. Um, and they want to go, and they know that the most effective way to do that is in the financial spheres and. Uh, the idea is to, and that go, that is coming from initiatives such as the World Benchmarking Alliance, which again regroups the same players. You will find again the, same, the exact same players behind this. Uh, and the World Benchmarking Alliance uh, has the idea of benchmarking corporations. So if you're a food company and you, you're making certain types of food, uh, those people are going to grade you. They're going to give you scores. And, and the score you're going to receive uh, will be um, depending on how well you are in line with the sustainability goals or with the SDGs. Um, so that basically will mean uh, if you go plant-based, you will get an ice core. If you insist on, on meat or another animal source foods, you will be downgraded. And basically you will, you will interfere with the markets and you will make it impossible for traditional food companies to survive. Um, huh. because it's, it's, it's a bit like you have with Standard & Poor's when you, you're grading countries, right? You give it an F or an A. And so you're making them more or less attractive for investors. And everything now is being decided by those huge investors. We, you talked about BlackRock before. The money is, you know, the money will go to the people that play the game. If you're not playing the game, well, you're going to be out. Yeah. Yeah, um, I will just say that uh, you know Toronto is actually on that list of cities, by yes. the way, because yes. I went and checked yes. it out. Yeah, and that's kind yes. of our our neck of the woods over here. Um, you know, this this I mean, it's just tapping into so many different things, right? Um, I think the first thing I'll I'll bring up, and maybe we can speak to that, is you know how much disruption really is there? You know, when we talk about things like a war on meat, I know Christian from Ice Age Farmer is really all over. Um, this and and I'm on his Telegram channel and I pay attention to what he's talking about. But is this you know I feel like this is really ramped up in the last two years. You, you know, um, mm. do, can, can you comment on that at all? Like, are you seeing that? I mean, you're in Europe as well. Like, are there things where um, you know we're we're just seeing maybe deliberate disruption? Um, I can tell you from the financial side of things that the cost of food here. Um, particularly meat and dairy has increased meat and dairy has the prices increased more than anything else 
for sure you know yes well it has to do also with the fragility of the whole system of course we have this very fragile food supply system at this moment so it becomes uh much more dangerous uh, from the moment something happens the pandemic didn't help you know it, yeah, if you yeah, upset yeah. the system everything co collapses so the supply chains are fragile because everything is hyper connected centralized and controlled by a few players and if something goes wrong the whole thing collapses for instance what happened is that because of the higher energy prices um fertilizer production went down and uh, you know yara for instance um could produce less fertilizer and because of that you had less co2 which is a side product from the fertilizer industry and that co2 is used for the stunning of pigs so then farmers were affected because they couldn't stun the pigs anymore and they couldn't bring them so th th there's a whole interconnectivity also that if you if you take out one little piece the whole thing yeah, <laughs> falls apart yeah, yeah, which yeah. also means of course that if you if if this is the state of affairs that if you're if you have bad intentions you can intervene and <laughs> pull out the plug and say look this is we did this we don't like this part so much let's let's break it down um yeah. it's a it's a that it's a very dangerous state of affairs and that's why i always argue for uh to go back to a higher degree of um of uh, self sustenance and 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 um self supply i mean at least that you can cover your own needs on a territorial basis. And, and I'm not against free trade. I mean, we need free trade and you know, we, we need to cooperate on a, on a global level, but we've, been, we've, we've gone too far and uh, we, we need to build back some, <laughs> did I just <laughs> say build back? <laughs> <laughs> so we need, to, <laughs> we, need, we need to bring back you know, a bit of robustness in, in our food supply system that we, we're not dependent on, 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 on a global play that is is uh mm. that, that just maybe just may deprive us of, of food that it's in, at, at, at the highest point of the crisis so it's it's a dangerous state of affairs and uh, do, do, that's what christian shows as well in his in his episodes right he says that yeah, you know, yeah do you feel um do you feel that there is uh i mean i think everyone's talking about supply chain issues and stuff like that but a lot of people when they talk supply chain they talk about computer chips or car parts or something like that but do you feel like there are major supply chain issues with the food system right now well, we see it. No, we see. It. We have, I mean, I see it in my supermarkets, and that you know that they have difficulties in in supplying uh, certain products, uh, certain products more than other products. Uh, but yes, because um, we, we're like we're we're not necessarily seeing it here. And I have some friends that work in grocery stores, and we've got yeah. a lot of farmers around here. So maybe it's not as obvious for me. Like I'm not in a city, so I don't know. Um, I know in the UK, you know, there's definitely reports coming out of the UK where they've got like major food shortages for certain items um but uh, yeah. i just wonder how Which prevalent also it is. To, yeah it also relates to the brexit and so on but mm. it, especially if those massive things are happening like african swine fever for instance and then the chinese that are building their reserves or mobilizing or not mobilizing there is so all those things interfere with the global supply yeah. chain and yeah. uh, not enough trucks not enough this yeah um, so uh okay so and then the the other um uh we're mm, just trying to think where we want to go here um so we've got this uh you know we've got the, the war on meat and all of this stuff and then we've got on the other side of it all we've got this really this push for a lot of engineered foods right um you know i was uh, i was sitting um 
it was an interesting time uh, for a couple of years pre-pandemic. Um, I was connected with this organization that was really getting into plant-based foods, right? And they were like an accelerator, incubator type of, of group. And their whole MO was basically to work with farmers, to use the the materials and the foodstuffs that they grew and then connect them with companies in the plant-based sector, right? Basically, right? So you, whether you're making granola bars or whatever the case. Uh, and that was an interesting time for me because uh, I went to a couple of meetings where one of the big ones was plant-based protein, right? So there was this huge event. I think it was like $150 a ticket and whatever else. And they had like investors and blah, blah, blah. And it was, that was an eye-opener for me because I went to that event and I sat there and and I was like, oh, so these guys are, you know, these are food economists. These are, are like big investors. You know, they got a lot of money. And uh, and all of a sudden, I'm sitting around and I'm just watching. You know, I'm I'm a nutritionist in that context, and I understand about food, but I didn't understand about all of the background stuff. And I started asking them. You know, I started asking people. I said, "So, you know, you're investing in this. Like, uh, pea protein is a big one. You know, so pea protein mm -hmm. is huge." And and uh, they were talking about the viability and the future of plant-based protein, right? So, what does that look like in the marketplace? And I started asking people about things like Roundup use, you know, so Roundup or, or glyphosate residue. And then I started asking them about or growing organic and, and stuff like that. And people had no idea what I was talking about. You know, I was, I was quite shocked, actually. That was not even part of the conversation. They could care less about it. All they cared about was how, how cheap can we grow it? Um, what can we use it in? And I think we're starting to see that now from the pea protein standpoint anyway, we're starting to see it enter into a lot of uh, vegan plant-based foods. Um, you know, your your cheeses, it's a thickening agent, it's cheap protein and stuff like that. So that's one area where I can see, you know, um, James Cameron, for example, was the guy who, mm. you know, the big filmmaker, uh, mm. he actually funded and directed um, that uh, the the last big vegan movie. I forget what Game Changers. I think it was. Yes. Yeah. So he he was the guy that backed all of that, and I didn't know at the time. I mean, it took them five years to make it. It was very well made, and then it turns out that he's invested 140 million dollars into pea protein, and so you're kind of like, okay, now I see why you're going down that road. But there's other things that we're now looking at as well. And you, as a um, you know, you're uh, you're a microbiologist in a sense as well, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. So, what are your thoughts now? You know, if we start pushing for things like cultured meats, um, lab-grown meats, synthetic food, and that sort of stuff, um, perhaps we can talk about that because it's one thing to say, okay, let's do away with meat, but then what's the replacement? And I think when you take a step back, what we're seeing is, you know, if I'm a goat herder in Nigeria. And I've just got goats. No one can really control me. You know, I've got goats. But if you outlaw or ban me from herding goats or growing, you know, having cows or whatever, then all of a sudden what you're doing is you're making me fully dependent on whatever food stuff you are supplying. And that kind of brings us full circle back to what you were talking about earlier, where there's this utopian vision of of a of of relying on factory foods in a sense. Um, so perhaps let's uh, let's talk a little bit about that. Um, you know what what's going on in that space, and uh, you know Beyond Meat, Impossible Burgers, and all sorts of stuff. Is that really taking off these days? Well, it, it, it's it's the it's the logical consequence of what the Rockefeller report said in '69. It's the food from factories. That's what they wanted. That that's the thing they wanted back then, and they're having it now. It's on the market. Um, it doesn't sell very well. I mean, they're not making profit. 
uh, they're pumping money into the whole thing. So they're, they're attracting lots of investors. Some the people, so it, it's a gigantic amount of money that just pumped into those things. And uh, but they're not making profit. Um, they're artificially maintaining the product in the shelves, basically. And you and what happens in my supermarket here in the next doors is that because I'm living uh, center of Brussels and it's a you know kind of neighborhood where again upper middle classes and lots of virtual signaling so uh, the supermarkets are, are putting the replacement foods the, the imitation foods on top of the shelves and the actual meat products are at the bottom so you have to bend if you want if you wish to take so that that only happens if there is an incentive right people are not making irrational decisions and putting the product doesn't sell on top so that's because they're pumping money into the whole thing and um, so it's it they're trying to maintain it and hoping that it takes off but and and they they present growth. I mean, they they present spectacular growth. But it's starting from from a very low base, and it it's not it's not getting to that. People actually don't really are not waiting for that. Uh, we, no, as of, far as I can tell, no. You know, I mean, I speak to people all the time, and I'm like, vegans, are you interested in eating that? And they're like, no, I don't want to eat it. And then it's like, vegetarians yeah. don't want to eat it. The yeah. paleo keto crowd, they don't want to eat it. So I'm kind of wondering, like, who's who's going to eat it? You know, like. They're targeting the flexitarians, right? They're the ones that want to reduce meat and they want to replace it with something else. But it's also not, it's not fantastic. <laughs> no, it's, it's not. not. I mean, great. you look at the ingredients, it's terrible ingredients. Yeah, so you try, you may try it once and then you say, well, I'm not going to buy it again because in the end, I didn't really get lots of satisfaction from that. Um, so it's um, it's ultra-processed foods as well. And it's we know that ultra-processed foods are, are a problem. Um, and... Mm -hmm. You, you just can't, you're only going to sell it to those to that small minority that has that exact mindset and they're gonna stubbornly keep on buying it um but that, it's a minority the, the problem with with the whole the whole thing we're talking about here is that sometimes we get the impression that this is a massive trend no the plant-based yes it, it is not it's 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 an agenda in in those specific circles you know the world economic forum the rockefeller foundation you know those those people yeah. are flirting with that idea, trying to impose it. Um, there, there is a small reception uh, within the urban middle classes of the West, which is a tiny, and, and then even in that part of the population, it's it's only a fragment of, of yeah. people. So it's it's a very tiny minority that is actually interested in this. The, the rest of the people don't care. Uh, so that's why it's not working. And you could say, well, then we have we have a phenomenon that will just disappear. Uh, you know, people will decide. Uh, you know, the, the market will decide if if it if it's maintained or not. But the problem is, this is this is not your classical market theory anymore. This is this, the technocratic agenda is is a very peculiar one, and it, it there's damage that is being done. That's the problem because while this is going on, and before we are returning to you know normal behavior again mm -hmm. while this is going on there's damage and and there's damage at so many levels uh, farmers are dropping out um you talked about we talked about the supply chains um people are even more disconnected from the whole food because they, at the end they're so so confused and, and the whole <laughs> the whole idea of healthy foods is just going nowhere because nobody knows anymore what's a healthy food you you hear that the beyond burger is a healthy food and it's you know it's junk food yeah yeah. So it's a whole confused message, and and then it's being imposed in 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 schools. You know, young children having to eat nutrient deficient uh, versions of of uh, of the normal meal. 
um, it's it's creating damage, and that's where that's where the problem is. If it would just be a, a market thing where people, something is offered and it doesn't work and it's taken out again, then that would be fine. I mean, uh, that's that's free choice for everybody, and then the, you know what, what wins takes it. But in this case, it, it's it's not the classical pattern of of consumer goods. Yeah. Well, also we got to we got to bear in mind that on the other side there is an active. Um, suppression or attack if you will on you know again meat equals bad um so it's not just meat equals bad and we can all live with that it's like meat equals bad so we should just do away with it altogether and mm -hmm. and there is an active persecution if you will um to try and get rid of that you know and i think a lot of people don't realize that and and some of the ways that they're doing that um you know you mentioned earlier fertilizer and um you know it's very very interesting i've i've spoken to a handful of people about this where there's fertilizer shortages now you mm -hmm. know so because of the price of natural gas going up so much in europe i mean some in some places it's 3 or 400% higher uh, when you double down with covid i mean we haven't even spoken about that but can you imagine yeah. you know you get a port for example in china that's like the biggest port in the world and one person gets covid and they shut the whole thing down for 10 days you know, that 10 days when you've got like a million people working at a port and there's, you know, goods being shipped back and forth, that's major, major disruption. That's not just for 10 days, that's for months and months and months. And so I think when you look at it like that as well, like what happens if a fertilizer plant, for example, they need natural gas to make fertilizer and then there's a COVID outbreak, um, air quotes, and all of a sudden they got to shut down for 10 days, uh, the cost of operations go up. So now they're like, well, we can't, you know, we're operating at a loss or we're operating on razor thin profit margins that we can't even pay our employees properly. So some of them have actually shut down or they've shut parts of their operations down. And and I, I worry about the the spring here in the northern hemisphere because there has been a mad dash for for fertilizer. Um, you know, farmers have been scrambling to try and buy up fertilizer. Um, as far as I know, manure is selling out or has sold out. Uh, you know, farmers historically would be getting calls once or twice a month, and now they're getting calls two to three times a week, um, you know, because manure is the only other fertilizer. And so one has to wonder now what's going to happen, you know, next um, August, September when it's or through the growing season for that matter. Um, you know, so when you look at yeah. these types of things as well, it's not necessarily that we're saying, you know, uh, governments and, and these corporations are going around and shutting farmers down. You know, that's not what we're saying. We're saying that they're making it very, the conditions um, are making it very, very difficult for farmers to operate at not even just a profit, but just at break even um, and keep, you know, keep a roof over their head, so to speak. Um, which is, you know, quite, so again, when you, when you look at that and then, you know, what's the solution, right? Well, here's the solution, right? We've got cultured meat, we've got lab grown meat, we've got all this sort of stuff, um, which is, which is quite crazy. Um, the last thing I think I, I wanted to touch on, um, is, and I don't know what your thoughts are on this, but, you know, a, a big part of, of this whole discussion is obviously plugging everything into climate change, right? And, um, you know, so this is save the planet, um, you know, meat is bad for the climate, um, humans have never, ever eaten this much meat before, and we hear a lot of these types of slogans. Um, what are your thoughts on, um, you know, and again, not just your thoughts, you, know, you are an academic, you're actively researching and publishing on this. What, what are your observations and thoughts on, um, you know, pushing for a plant-based agenda in order to save the planet and help climate change? Well, they're just you know, using every possible argument defined to 
you know, to, to further that agenda. They're throwing things at the wall and see what sticks. Uh, climate change is the thing that our people are most anxious about today, so that's why it's working best. Uh, they try to blame they try to blame COVID on on on, on meats as well. You know, they, whatever yeah, yeah. whatever is creating anxiety, they try to blame it on meat, and they just see what will work and will what will not work. Um, climate anxiety is the big one. So, um, well, we could talk for hours on the on the science behind this and why it's uh, it's much more complicated than the slogans are suggesting. Um, yes, agriculture has an effect on, on on the environment, obviously. I mean, but that's valid for all of agriculture. Uh, you you find plenty of problematic scenarios within the crop agriculture. Spheres and as what well. what what might some of those be for people who are maybe not well, well versed in that? The production of avocados, for instance, creates lots of, of, of damage, even for social for social reasons, because it's sometimes about exploitation of, of people and uh, there's the, the mafia is involved as well. And but also with respect to water use and um, the, the monocropping of of, of uh, that, that that's that that creates. Uh, devastation for biodiversity for instance so um nuts that take water that need lots of water uh, cashew nuts in india that you know that are peeling and that, that they corrode the hands of, of, the, of the workers i mean there's lots and lots of things you could talk about nobody talks about those they all talk about how cows are belching out their methane right <laughs> um, and that that comes with lots of context uh it, it's it's very complicated science i mean it's maybe it's not the time and yeah, yeah, that, yeah, that's. A, I mean, I'm more, more just, uh, you know, again, and I know a lot of those points, but just for listeners, especially where, you know, I think we have this utopian vision of, well, it's plant based, so nothing had to die. It's great for the planet. Um, it's not, you know, there's no methane uh, farts coming off, you know, and that sort of stuff. And I think that people kind of stop there. You know, they they don't think much further than that. Where you, you know, you start thinking about some of the things you spoke about, um, the use of chemicals. Um, we're starting to see a lot more GMO crops, you know, so they're starting to genetically modify more foods, which has a whole set of its own problems. Um, you know, terminator seeds, uh, as we're seeing in India, I mean, huge, huge problems in India with that. So, you know, I think you, you're correct in saying that um, I think people have this very naive utopian type of, of idea of plant-based equals good, you know, good for the planet. Mm. Um, animal animals bad because of you know the fart and land uh, land mass required and water required and all that sort of stuff. And I'll be honest, I mean I, I'm guilty of that because even teaching nutrition and the environment, you know, I taught that for a long time and 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 I kind of fell into that trap myself. You know, where you start mm. hearing things like, oh, a meat based diet requires seven times more land, but but then the context is lost. You know, are we talking about growing fields of soy and corn for the for the cows or are we talking about pastured cows mm -hmm. or what are yeah. we what are we talking where yeah. are they where where do they live you know where are they grown yeah. um that's what you know and everything comes with the context if you talk about the land so first of all you have to feed food competition and uh, so it depends it depends on the kind of practice but also you know you have to make a distinction between marginal lands and 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 land that is Mm. fertile of cropping as well that can enter the competition in the first place if you're talking about water you don't you know you have you talk about fifteen thousand liters of water per kilogram of beef but you have rain falling which is yeah. counted as part of that fifteen thousand. and in the end it's not all that much 
very often it's even just comparable to the water you need for grain or for any for, for crops in general. Mm. Uh, the methane story is similar. It depends if your herds increase or decrease or maintained. If they're maintained or slightly decreased, you don't even contribute to global warming at all because of the biogenic yeah. cycles of methane. So it's all about how you practice your um, animal husbandry. It's about, and in contrast, how you practice your crop agriculture. That makes the difference. Uh, which yeah. kind of systems are you putting in place? Are they respectful for biodiversity? Um, are they are they cyclic uh, or are they linear and then depleting resources? It depends on how you farm. And yes, we need to do things. I'm, 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 I never took the position that everything is fine in animal agriculture. Yeah. Yeah, you know, yeah, and we likewise. need to fix things urgently. Um, so I'm, I'm not against reforms in animal agriculture at all. I think we need to to do things, uh, but but it's it's a different thing than saying you know everything in the animal sphere is bad and everything in the plant sphere is good. That's absolutely not true. That's that's a lie. That's a simplistic lie. And it it goes in a way it goes back to the Seventh Day Adventist and the Garden of Eden diet. You know, it's just as if the plants represent the perfect state of nature and then you have the filthy animals because they're talking about farts and belches and yeah, yeah, yeah. See, <laughs> with those connotations of dirtiness. Yeah, Christian makes a point as well often in his, in his, uh, in his episodes. Um, so the, it's the symbolic discussion. Don't underestimate mm. how symbolism affects the way we, we think. Um, and if mm. it's if they say follow the science, well, it is it is that state of science that plays on the symbolism. It is never the the, the scientific dialogue. You know, it's it, they, mm -hmm. they cherry pick some arguments that confirm that message. The a priori statement here is animals are bad and plants are good, and then they, they look for scientific pieces to support that, and they try climate change, they try uh, cancer, they try you know they they try whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So do you think, um, you know, I mean, I, I, I don't even want to bring it up, but like there's obvious biases within the scientific sphere as well. You know, I mean, I think it's uh, we can't just say that science is this benevolent, you know, purely objective, um, you know, thing out there. Um, but, you know, just to wrap us up, do, what, hypothetically speaking, what would happen if the whole world went vegetarian? Um, do, do you think that's even possible? Or let's just say, let's go one step further, not from the health. So forget about the health side of things. But if the whole planet went vegan, um, would would that actually save the planet, like in a nutshell? Well, if we, if, if, <laughs> and I, no, I know not. I'm putting you on the spot. <laughs> the kind short of answer is no, we will not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, the, um, look, the, if you want to optimize, um, if you want to optimize the planet you need to integrate animal and plant agriculture because it's the mm. it's the interconnection that gives you the most robust scenario. It's the upcycling of the things you cannot eat. Uh, you know, you upcycle the material that comes from the crop agriculture that cannot be used for, for human food. You can valorize that through animals, as we have always done. Um, you you need the animals to, to fertilize right. um, your, 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 your land in the first place. Um, it, it's the interconnectivity of both and trying to get back to cyclic systems as much as we can mm -hmm. that will provide a solution. If you take out the animals, you're taking out a vital element of, of, of the whole, you know, holistic system. If you talk about food systems, you should consider all the elements. You cannot just say the food system uh, as we have it now, well, we, we remove half of it and we, <laughs> we'll just be, it will be better off with, 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 with only half of it. That's just... That's a crazy yeah. idea. Yeah. Well, and I think people forget about that, right? Like there's that there was a whole veganic movement. I don't know if you caught wind of that. There, there were like 
fully, fully vegan farmers. So the fertilizer they were using, everything. And I was like, man, but you got to grow. Now you're growing fertilizer to fertilize the plants that you're trying to grow to eat. Like it just doesn't make any sense, you know. But I think what you and I are both getting at here, and I've said this before, is, you know, we can't just, it's like throwing the baby out with the bathwater. You know, you can't just say that all all animal farming is factory farming and therefore it's all torture, it's all terrible and we should do away with it all. It's like, maybe we need to look at that and say, let's do away with factory farming and maybe we should start looking more at regenerative um, organic type of agriculture that does include animals and that really, you know, small scale farms um, and and go down that road um, surely would, would be a, the, the, the true sustainable way forward as opposed to doing away with it all and then relying on synthetic or lab-grown foods controlled by mega corporations in the world. I mean, that that's, uh, you know, those are very, very different ideas. Um, but yet we seem to be pushed down and corralled down this idea, this, this pathway where ultimately we are, um, you know, we could very well become fully dependent on, on these uh, multinational corporations um, with suspect food. Let's put it that way. Um, yeah, that's where they want to have us, right? That's where they want to have us. I'm, I'm, yeah, yeah. If you're dependent, you're the perfect customer, you're the perfect client or the perfect, you know, yeah. that's the yeah. market you want to have, the market, market of dependency. That's, yeah. that's well, Frederick, um, I don't want to keep uh, keep you too much longer. We're just on an hour. Um, thank you so much for your time today. Great to see you. And, um, you know, obviously I keep up to speed with everything that you're doing on Twitter and uh, I, I check your posts out and read your articles um any final words or anything um where can people find you uh where would you prefer them to to follow you or check out your work and i'll put those in the show notes well if, the, if people are really interested in the scientific arguments you know the ones that uh pertain to the to the health discussions but also the environmental discussions and even the ethical discussions um they can find a very comprehensive overview on the internet it's called the aleph 2020 initiative um, and uh, it's something I started and uh, is now um, a platform involving about what is it about 40 scientists uh, that are uh, bringing a message of nuance and, and context and uh, and are offering a comprehensive view on, on the whole on the whole topic. Perfect. So you find plenty of details. You find hyperlinks to the original studies. Uh, maybe that's something that you can put in the show notes. Absolutely. Uh, and it presents you the scientific. It's it's a bit technical. To be fair, uh, so but if if you're if you're used to scientific language, I think you'll you'll find plenty of resources there that may be of interest. Okay, perfect. And then I will also um, put a link to your uh, Twitter um, feed as okay. well because I know you're pretty active there as well. So um, thanks so much, and um, yeah, you know I'll I'll keep up to speed with you on Twitter, and um, if anything else comes up, we'll touch base. Okay, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks, Brett. My pleasure.